0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz.
1: And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. And we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Professor and Dean Melinda Irwin of the Yale School of Public Health. But first we'd we like prof- to check in- professor, Howie, she's got a chair. That's the Susan Dwight Bliss Professor, absolutely. Oh, there we go. Of there public we go. health. Uh, but first we like to check in on current health news. You and I have talked about EviaShield, which is the cocktail of monoclonal antibodies that have been prescribed for those who are immunocompromised to prevent COVID and its most serious outcomes. And probably the most definitive current paper came out last week that gives us a lot more info on its effectiveness and it is pretty impressive. I mean, it's comparable to the earlier studies about the vaccines. It's only six months of data after the uh, initial injection, but it really does seem to be as effective as our vaccines and it was tested during the time of Delta, Beta Beta, and uh, Alpha. Um, They only tested this in unvaccinated, high-risk individuals, and there were many questions, but the overall outcomes, including the adverse events, were really uh, very favorable. But one additional fact stood out to me in reading the paper is that four of the participants, two in the placebo group, two in the EviaShield group, died of illicit drug overdoses. So this is almost 1% of the population in a clinical trial, people who voluntarily Uh, participated in a clinical trial, died of drug overdoses in a six-month period of follow-up. We we have spent some time talking about the opioid epidemic and the vast deaths that have ensued. Uh, And this is a highly unusual population in some ways. But this data point was shocking to me. And it ties in with uh, President Biden's announcement last week of his comprehensive plan to address Uh, the opioid epidemic and addiction. And we could go into all the elements of that, but I I don't think we're doing as much for this as we've done for the um, COVID pandemic, but we are losing 100,000 people a year to opioid overdoses. And I, I really do hope that our interventions start to bear fruit.
0: Well, look, if anybody has any questions about how closely you read articles, you're proven to us that you actually read every word because uh, that, that information's tucked into the article. It's not the main finding by any means. And as you said, it was equally distributed in the two groups, so it, it's not anyone who just casually listening, this wasn't a, a complication or an issue related to the intervention, but Howie's making the point that, that it, it occurred unexpectedly commonly. Uh, it, it, because this isn't just opioid use, but actually deaths from opioid use, and, and that's, uh, that's just disturbing. Look, there's a, a lot of areas of health in this country that deserve our attention, that, that fall into, I would say, public health, epidemiology, are thinking about the way that our society is structured and, and the kind of policies that we do to regulate the medications and to enforce our laws. And, you know, at Yale, we have a lot of people working on this issue of substance abuse, and it continues, it continues to be a major cause of death, particularly in younger people, disproportionately than, than anything that you might expect. But if you put that together, you roll in violence, accidents, deaths from handguns, uh, as, you know, overlapping with, you know, all the both intentional and unintentional, the suicides. I mean, we, we have lots of targets for us that could markedly improve health that we ought to be working on just as much as we are traditional cardiovascular disease and cancer and stroke these deserve our attention too and i'm a cardiologist believe me i'm all in on preventing cardiovascular disease but but these other drugs that are in in a way end up being marginalized or stigmatized as opposed to mainstream we've got to understand them as a blight on society a major cause of adverse health outcomes it's something that we in the healthcare system uh, need to be able to focus on just as we do anything else.
1: And as you point out, I, I will say to the credit of our colleagues here, this is a, a continued uh, focus of research, but it is just such tragic loss of life and so many years of productive years of life are lost to this. So I just was struck by it. I, I don't know why it hit me so hard. The idea that you could lose 1% of a clinical trial to something like a you know illicit drug overdose as they describe it was just shocking. Yeah, horrible, just horrible. All right, so it's great to introduce Professor Melinda Irwin, the Susan Dwight Bliss Professor of Epidemiology an Associate Dean of Research at the Yale School of Public Health, Associate Director of the Yale Cancer Center, and Deputy Director in the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. She's a leader in the field of cancer research, focusing on both cancer prevention and control through lifestyle factors. She currently leads two cancer training programs and has mentored over 100 trainees at Yale. Uh, Dean Irwin did her graduate work at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the University of Washington, and earned her PhD from the University of South Carolina. I know we're gonna get to hear more about the important work you've done in cancer epidemiology, and particularly the intersection of exercise, modifiable lifestyle factors, and outcomes in patients with cancer. But I wanted to start off by asking you about your journey. You went to college in Virginia, did two graduate degrees in the Carolinas, and earned your MPH after your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about how this happened and how it informs your current work?
2: Sure. Happy to. So, yeah. So like many public health students, we often have a little bit of a journey to then end up in public health, right? Um, But also similar to many public health students, I always thought I would go to medical school. So growing up, I was an athlete. I actually was a gymnast. I had a whole career in that. I was a D1 gymnast at William & Mary. And so I was always into sports, thought I'd be an orthopedist. But then my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer in the early 80s and she, um, in her young 40s, and then died of breast cancer when I was 18. So I was just beginning college. And I was interested at that time in the intersection between sports or athletics, or physical activity, and cancer prevention, and there was nothing. There was really nothing in the literature from my naive young perspective at that time, and um, so I just went went through college, did you know all the pre med classes and whatnot but then I went to Chapel Hill after college, not sure of, you know, thinking I'd still go to medical school, but I went to Chapel Hill and made, and got a master's in exercise physiology. And at that time, in the orientation of, of, of the program, I met an epidemiologist, Barb Ainsworth, who had trained at Minnesota and was sort of A leader at that time in assessing physical activity levels, the behavior and the challenges behind it, much like with diet or any lifestyle behavior and the intricacies around that. So I sort of focused my master's on measuring these behaviors. And then she left for South Carolina um, to head up the CDZ Prevention Research Center down there. So I followed her down to South Carolina, continued my really my focus during my PhD was on assessment um, of these behaviors. But then in 1994, uh, Leslie Bernstein published one of the first papers connecting physical activity with breast cancer risk. So that took me out to um, out west. She was at University of uh, Southern California, and I did my postdoc training at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center with Ann McTiernan and worked on this large NCI-funded trial among women diagnosed with breast cancer, a large prospective cohort. And that really launched my career, starting with some prospective observational findings of these lifestyle behaviors and cancer outcomes. And then that brought me to Yale to really look at interventions and clinical trials, because there wasn't any back in the early 2000s. And I've been fortunate to be able to do that for 20 years now, really looking at how modifiable behaviors might impact cancer outcomes. So that might have been a long-winded answer to your short question.
1: No, that's that's what I wanted to hear, and I'm sorry about. I've uh, losing your mother at that age is an incredibly impactful yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm really and, sorry.
2: Well, I think you know, in the '80s versus now, I think we, some of us might take for granted the major advances in in cancer prevention and outcomes. I mean, we've had a 30% decline in cancer mortality rates from the peak in the 1990s, a 30% decline. That's huge, right? And much of that is because of a modifiable behavior, tobacco, tobacco control, which explained probably 50% of that 30% reduction. And of course, major advances in treatment, immunotherapy and more targeted treatments. But sort of the concern we have is over these past 30 years, while cancer mortality has declined, obesity rates have increased. And so you overlap those two and what's what, what's going to happen, um, you know, over the next decade. I hope we continue to see a decline in mortality rates, um, but um, we have to get a better handle on the role of sort of our food environment, our built environment. Um, You know, because we are more sedentary than ever before because of the advances we have with um, technology and whatnot.
0: You know, one of the great treats for us doing this podcast is when we talk to our colleagues is to really get a chance to actually review the kind of things that they've done. And Melinda, I've been amazed at at just the kind of productivity and the impact of the work that you have and and so interested in it. People who are listening may know that there's a lot of focus on lifestyle and a little less so, but some on social determinants in the prevention of cancer. But, but you've been focused on what it means once you're diagnosed with cancer. And, and a lot of people might be thinking, well, isn't it that you know there's this mutation and you get cancer and, and then it's sort of, your biologies would take over at that point. But, but I think one of the great things about the work that you're doing is to suggest that there are things under people's control outside of the quality of their healthcare that may be able to help them to survive better and longer. And I just wondered how you came on that and what do you think when you're talking to people about your work that helps convince people that they really should take charge and that there are things under their control that can affect their survival?
2: Yeah, um, you know, there's multiple pathways or mechanisms where lifestyle behaviors can be effective in not just cancer outcomes, but as you know, with cardiovascular disease, diabetes and whatnot, but when we take cancer, you know, the diagnosis in and of itself can, for, for some, it can kind of make them look a little bit at their routine, their daily routine, what their priorities are and whatnot. And, but it also requires us as a um, organization, a hospital or an environment, what can we do to help our patients, right? And so the area of my research might look at how, you um, the treatments that the patients receive, how do we reduce the toxicity, right? So we want to make sure they have the adjuvant treatments available to them, but that we minimize the the adverse side effects that in turn might make them not adhere to their chemotherapy or their aromatase inhibitors. And in fact, observational research has shown that with breast cancer chemotherapy, only about fifty percent of patients adhere to the prescribed amount of chemotherapy recommended for them so 50% are not receiving the dose that is recommended because of the toxicity so how can our interventions or these modifiable behaviors lower the toxicity to improve their adherence so that's one sort of pathway but another pathway is direct is just by eating healthy following the dietary guidelines and the physical activity guidelines have a direct impact on prognosis, on survival. We don't yet know that. So there's a lot of large trials right now going on with disease-free survival as the end point because it could be that at diagnosis, changing your behaviors, changing your body weight, changing your diet, changing exercise might not actually have an impact on survival. I hope so. I hope those trials, which are very methodologically strong in their design. I hope they do show, but if they are not, if it's a null finding, we know there's evidence that these behaviors can improve the side effects, can we're showing that it can improve adherence to treatments and just the overall quality of life. And and also cardiovascular disease outcomes as well. So that's what I like about the research I do. There's multiple sort of pathways. The trials that we do with patients we collect participant satisfaction surveys at the end, and what they say is profound. With how how thinking about having having a counselor talking with them weekly has helped them to to change their behaviors in a way that was accessible to them. Because it's it's not all on the patient. It's the community we live in. It's it's not easy to eat healthy and to exercise. We don't live in an environment that that cultivates that. So.
0: Well, you, you you might want to just share what I thought was a kind of promising finding in that study you published around weight loss uh, in breast cancer survivors and, and its impact on breast tissue markers. I mean, I know that that's just a prelude to a study that's actually going to see whether yeah. or not people actually live longer. But I thought that was interesting and promising. Yeah, so,
2: so some of the biological findings we found in a short duration, so within six months, um and with not like running a marathon but walking brisk walking of like say 30 minutes a day and really preventing weight gain um not significant weight loss but really more the message of preventing weight gain and reducing sedentary behavior one of our findings is a 30% decrease in c-reactive protein which as you guys know is a marker of chronic inflammation Um, And you know, we measure, we take a fasting blood draw from the study participants at baseline. We randomize them to intervention or to usual care. We do another fasting blood draw at six months. And so the change in these blood biomarkers is directly a result of the intervention. So in another study we took, um, these participants were so willing, we were able to get breast biopsies, to get breast tissue from them at baseline, and then six months later and we we um, showed changes in the immune pathways and inflammatory pathways suggesting that um, eating healthy and exercise had direct effects on these you know these pathways where we have targeted therapies um, you know drugs to that are not necessarily standard of care yet like metformin um, in cancer but um, pretty um, important findings and yet lifestyle interventions at a somewhat modest change of our lifestyle behaviors can elicit a similar response in these immune and inflammatory and metabolic pathways.
0: It just makes me think that, you know, also we have these medications, the GLP-1 agonists, you know, these pills that can reduce cardiovascular risk and reduce weight, that that these also, I mean, there's, it just opens up a wide range of things that we might prescribe in terms of behavior and in terms of of pills. Sorry, Howie. Just I'm excited to hear all the stuff Melinda's doing.
1: It was pretty much along the same lines. For our listeners to know, metformin is a drug typically used for diabetes, right? And uh, and, and as Harlan said, like the intersection of diabetes treatment with cancer epidemiology is not an intuitive one. Um, For our listeners, a lot of people think of epidemiology as the study of infectious disease, but it's really the study of diseases. Can you tell us more about sort of the opportunity set that exists in oncology for studying diseases and and learning about the intersection between what, to the common person is just about cells dividing in a a, uh, um, uncontrolled manner, but also interacting with the human biology that we don't fully understand?
2: Well, so if we think about the role of population sciences or public health and cancer outcomes, I mean, there's, there's no better example, not cancer specific, but when you look at COVID-19, so all the laboratory-based findings in the clinical trials led to these three FDA-approved vaccines, right? But then what was the next critically important step? It was getting those vaccines into people, right? If that never happened, those discoveries, while critically important, we wouldn't have been where we are today, right? And we still have a way to go with more increasing vaccination rates, and whatnot. But that's the same thing in cancer. So um, similar to the research and work that Harlan does, you know, we have outcomes research, which is really kind of taking these clinical findings and, and um, putting them into a real world setting. You know, how do we test the effectiveness of whether it's a drug or a lifestyle behavior or a therapy? but in a real-world setting, um, under real-world real conditions. And so that's what I love about sort of cancer prevention and survivorship research. We, we use the, the same methodology. It's a very strong study designs. Um, what's challenging about behavioral research is when we call participants to recruit them into our trials, they want the intervention, and you can't blind them to it. And so if they don't get the intervention, they might drop out. And so you have to be a little bit savvy in how you keep them in the trial and and not adopt the behavior if they're in the control group. But I think there's a lot we can do in cancer research that is beyond the laboratory and even beyond the clinic that has such impact. You know, We have to, I'm constantly reminding my basic and clinical scientists, we have to translate from not just the bench to the bedside, but to the community. And, um, you know, really bring these interventions, these therapies to those who need them most in the community.
1: And I'll just say one of the more recent uh, studies that you participated in with our other colleagues uh, pointed out that even when you adjust for socioeconomic factors, cancer care in under-resourced communities, even when you adjust for income and other factors, uh, is reduced. They have reduced access and reduced outcome, or, or worse outcomes. Uh, so are you involved in any community based interventions, uh, targeting social determinants of health or structural racism, either, or, or both? Yes.
2: Yeah, so, um, The Yale Cancer Center has supported a lot of um, research in this area. So working with Marcella and Eunice Smith and Carrie Gross and others, we have a project. It's actually sort of three projects together to develop a large program project looking at just that structural and social determinants of health and cancer outcomes. And so the team really, you know, led by Carrie and Marcella looking at sort of when not just at diagnosis, but any time that you're coming into, say, a cancer hospital and you have, you know, screening, better screening for these social determinants of health and not just the screening, but then the referral. And so when we look at where we as a system falling short, it's number one, the screening of these social determinants of health and then the referral. And when we analyze what are the biggest issues and um, the challenges, food security, transportation, And housing. And that's not unique to cancer, right? And so, if we can better understand these structural and social determinants or barriers to access and to better health outcomes, focusing on those areas the food security, the um, transportation and housing issues, I think we can have a huge impact on health outcomes. So there's, we're doing research on that now, building up to put in a larger grant application to the NIH on this topic. Um, so hopefully a lot more to come in this space, focused in the New Haven area, but also across the state of Connecticut. We have a nice platform here in Connecticut um, with our Smilo Cancer Hospital where we have 14 additional Um, care centers across the state delivering the same care you'd get here at Smilo in the care center, um, you know, one of those 14 across the state. So it allows us to do research and care um, from more of an implementation science angle or perspective, which is exciting.
0: Where are you thinking we are in terms of understanding exactly what we should be prescribing from lifestyle to people once they're diagnosed with cancer? And by the way, there's also stress. I mean, I'm sure the more that we can address the stress of the moment and and helping them to cope must be part of this. So how are you thinking about where the science is going to go and how the platforms of being able to do research better and faster are going to evolve?
2: Yes, so the research over the past 30 years, the observational research, the large prospective court studies, it's interesting because the the physical activity recommendation has changed over the years. I'm talking in general for the, the healthy adult, let's say. In the 90s, um, well, prior to the 90s, it was more about vigorous intensity exercise, you know, 30 minutes a week, you know, going to the gym and that kind of exercise. And then in the 90s, there was the, the Surgeon General's report and the CDC and American College of Sports Medicine put out, no, modern intensity exercise, you know, about 150 minutes per week is sufficient. And that was based on these large cohorts. So it was all about modern intensity activity. And then... Uh, in the last decade the recommendation now the, the primary recommendation is to reduce sedentary time so it's not even vigorous or moderate or certain duration or that it's reducing sedentary activity and why is that because when we look at the 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 graph we see going from nothing to something is your biggest reduction in risk for cardiovascular disease for cancer all cause mortality so going from nothing to just something even if it's not that two and a half hours per week a recommended amount of moderate intensity, you see a lot of benefit. So that kind of makes it hard in regards to what would we prescribe? Well, number one, something is better than nothing, right? Um, and so that's where like the apps on our phone, you know, that the heart app, if you look at it, how many steps you're getting a day and making that a challenge um, is, is probably recommendation number one, letting people know what is, a, what is a good amount of steps per day. Someone might think a thousand steps a day is most. Unfortunately, it's closer to like 10,000 steps a day, about 2,000 steps is a mile. So I think starting there, it's a really easy message to tell patients, um, you know, and then gear it up based on where they're at, meet the patient where they're at. So, but I do think we need to do something because right now as a, let's say a patient newly diagnosed with cancer, you come in and you appropriately meet with the surgeon and the oncologist but we don't routinely meet with the physical therapist or the dietician. We have an amazing survivorship clinic here at Smilo led by Tara Samft, but often um, the physician has to refer them and we don't, we're not good at that referral process. So there's a lot of work to be done in in getting these these little bits of information out there.
0: Sometimes I just think that If we said to people, we have an additional medication that could produce this size benefit, would you be interested in it? Almost everyone would say yes. When we present it as exercise, lifestyle change, you know, it doesn't ring the same bell, but also for the docs, if you told the docs, would you be interested in prescribing a highly effective medication with very few side effects? Most would be on board, but yet when it comes to lifestyle referrals, we're not as good about that. I, I think you're making good. And it's point. interesting. To...
2: Why are we not good? It's not as easy as just writing a prescription and going to the pharmacy. But it shouldn't be as hard, right? You know, Medicare reimburses for obesity counseling, weight weight management counseling, um, for Medicare recipients. But do you know what percent actually get that counseling? Two percent. Oh my gosh. So even if we build these Incentives, these resources, these programs—we have to figure out what are really the barriers or what not.
1: So I want to—I want to make sure that we don't um, ignore the other part of your career, which is really mentorship, education, uh, and leading programs at our school and and nationally. Um, how do you fit it all in, first of all? And. And what what is your key to success in generativity and generativity in in creating leaders in healthcare that'll pursue these these challenges?
2: Well, not nearly as busy as you both, so um, I have a little bit more time probably than you guys. I I think what's been a nice shift we're seeing, that's not unique to Yale; it's everywhere, is that the outreach and the training and the mentoring that we want to do starts early. It it's. Not just our graduate students, nor our college students. It's high school and it's middle school. And like you, we get emails from from high school students. And I try to respond literally as best I can to every email I get. Because I remember being a high school student. I have high school-age boys right now. And you're brave enough to send that email out and craft the email. So giving them that response might ignite something in them to pursue that field. So you you have to kind of start there, but then with the students that we have, um, you know, they have, they're the next generation, right? They're the ones that are going to come up with these innovative treatments, therapies, interventions, approaches. And um, I think we do an amazing job here at Yale in focusing on um, the approaches and having really strong designs and, and educating them in that as well as the content area right there's so you know nowadays you have to be so transdisciplinary in your training and in your research I think I think we we are doing a good job at that and can continue to so that the, the two training programs I have that's probably what I like most about it is it's not one discipline It's it's taking, you know, faculty and students from all these different areas and coming up with ideas together is how to move a field forward.
0: I agree. I I, I, we want to be respectful of of your time. I I, I think this I just say one thing is that we do know on the Yale campus like you're a person who really invests in in the students. And and it's actually a great role model for how much you care and and how much you've helped others. So it's uh, it's just great to see. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and like I said for me it's it's a joy both to talk to you but also get a chance when you know in preparation to be able to see the kind of work you've been doing lately and and over your career and uh anyway it's been really nice to talk to you
2: Well thank you both for you know disseminating this information that from all your um guests and um and and just getting more of the you know we can't just be publishing in journals we got to get the information out there um, in many different ways. So thank you for what you guys are doing, too.
0: Well, thanks. But it's all Howie. It's all Howie. <laughs> Take care.
1: <laughs> thanks very much.
2: Right, have a great rest of the day. See you later.
1: So Harlan, what um, what's, what's either inspiring you or catching your attention this week? Because there's an awful lot going on.
0: Well, there's an awful lot going on, that's for sure. Uh, look, <laughs> as avid Twitter users, you and I, I don't think that It couldn't escape our attention this week that Elon Musk put together a 40-plus billion dollar offer, and appears to be on his way towards taking Twitter private, and and had gotten the financing and pulled this thing off. and And wow, just wow. Let me just say one quick thing about this because the thing that impressed me most is the speed with which he accomplished this. By the way, he broke almost every rule of what you're supposed to do when you're thinking about acquiring a company. He went public from the very beginning. He he. He talked about his involvement, his interest. I mean, he was going to go on the board then wasn't going to go on the board. But look, whatever you think of Musk, he's a can do guy. I mean, this person gets things done. I mean, from from being able to give Internet coverage to the Ukraine to be, you know, what he's doing with, you know, launching uh, these rockets to, to, of course, Tesla. Everybody was talking about electric cars. He made it happen. I think we all ought to take at least a little bit of inspiration from the notion that, that people can come up with ideas and actually with will, skill, and by strategic partnerships make things happen at a pace that that are unusual in, in the world today. But but with regard to what it's gonna mean for Twitter, for for free speech, whether it'll open the door to to more problems on social media, I, I actually have no idea, but I can tell you. In a lot of areas where he's been involved, he's produced good products and uh, he's got a pretty good track record. Can't say I agree with him on a lot of things, on everything, but uh, in terms of his record, kind of impressed with the stuff that he gets done.
1: I am too. I mean, I've been a critic of him on a number of levels and and also an admirer of of the things he's done. Um, But I will say this, I, I think it will be fascinating to see how he tackles the issue of free speech. Um, and trying to create a better public square because there's no, there's no perfect public square out there Uh, and Twitter is not a true public square either as as a private entity, but it is easier said than done to uh, create freedoms for people um, and to allow people to want to engage in that area. And I really do, I'm rooting for him, quite honestly. I want him to succeed. I enjoy Twitter. I think it's made me a better communicator, uh, even, even even though there are times that I probably act badly myself. Um, but I'm rooting for him.
0: I've I never seen you succeeds, act badly. It'll make
1: it better. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know,
0: ironically enough, this guy is a, you know, a super engineer. He solves problems. But this may be his most difficult problem because it's about human behavior. You know, it's one thing to to solve the battery or to solve how do you drill in the ground in the boring company or how do you get somebody on Mars? These are these are engineering technical problems there. They may seem so difficult, but like the most difficult thing is the human mind. And really being able to manage human behavior and, and social media, I'm really curious to see how he, how he's able to do.
1: Fingers crossed. Definitely.
0: And good luck to him. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholz and Howie Foreman.
1: So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter.
0: I'm at HMKYALE, that's HMK Yale.
1: And I'm at the Howie, that's at T H E H O W I E.
0: Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Sherry Wang, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, Howie.
1: Thanks very much, Harl, and talk to you soon.